You're listening to Sex Gets Real with Dawn Sarah. That's me. This is a place where we explore sex, bodies, and relationships from a place of curiosity and inclusion, tying the personal to the cultural, where you're just as likely to hear tender questions about shame and the complexities of love as you are to hear experts challenging the dominant stories around pleasure, body politics, and liberation. This is about the big and the small, about sex and everything surrounding it we don't usually name. The funny, the awkward, the imperfect happen here in service to joy, connection, healing, and creating healthier relationships with ourselves and each other. So welcome to Sex Gets Real. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hello to you on what is a chilly, dark, and wintry day here in Western Canada. I am deploying fuzzy slippers and sweaters and blankets galore. I have about 10 days until my three and a half week vacation. For the first time in, I don't know, God, the five years that I've been self-employed, I'm actually giving myself permission to not do work, to not have client calls. And I'm hosting just one meeting that entire time. It's the first time I really feel like I can actually give myself that kind of permission, which is weird and wonderful, but honestly also kind of scary. It's been so long since I've had a long period of time where I just really didn't work, but I don't know how to do that. So we'll see how it goes. It's going to be a chance for us to walk along the wintry beach of Vancouver Island where we're staying. I'm taking a stack of books, a stack of puzzles, lots of hot chocolate. We're going to have great food and sex and rest and dream big dreams. So who knows when I come back from vacation, but I'll be ready to start cooking up for all of you. This week, it's you and me. And then in preparation for me being away and not working, You're going to be hearing from the amazing Kai Chang Tom next week. And then two weeks after that, I have a really rad conversation with author Darcy Steinke all about menopause, plus a couple of episodes featuring your emails. So good stuff coming up, even though I won't be around, you'll still have all kinds of really juicy, juicy episodes to tune into. Also, something happened this week that hasn't happened in a while, which I'm grateful that it hasn't happened in a while. I received an unsolicited dick pic via the podcast email inbox, but that person is now on the receiving end of a $500 invoice for sexual harassment, so we'll see what they do with that, (laughs) but... I am very, very generous with those invoices (laughs) when people send me unsolicited dick pics. So don't do that. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is how separated and isolated we are all becoming. This is because of some books that I've been reading and some conversations that I've been having, but just really noticing how... In all of the spaces that I'm in and all of the groups that I facilitate, the conversations that I have, 
everyone is expressing this longing for community and for connection and really articulating how lonely they feel, how transactional so many of our encounters with other humans can be and really how starved and deprived that's leaving all of us. One of the books that I just finished reading is Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And it's been giving me so many thoughts. I underlined and made notes in the margins of this book from cover to cover. And if you would love to be in conversation with me and a whole bunch of other rad people about that book, patrons, if you support it $3 and above, you can join the Explore More book club call for that book, How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell on December 12th. Details are at patreon.com slash SGR podcasts. So go check that out. But I've just been thinking a lot about where we're putting our attention, how we're really connecting to each other or how we're not. And funny enough, this new article on Vice came across my feed this week that really spoke to so much of what I've been thinking about. The title is The Life of the Skin Hungry, Can You Go Crazy from a Lack of Touch? So I'll link to that at donsara.com slash EP284. But I'm really glad to see more people asking questions about this, particularly around skin hunger and touch hunger. I've had some um, really interesting conversations over the years with people who are from cultures that are much more about collectivism as opposed to the individualism that we see here in like the US and Canada and so much of Europe. And what I've learned is that in collectivist cultures, touch is built into the ways so many people relate to each other throughout the day from platonic handholding between friends, even among cis men, is really common in places like Thailand, hugging and cuddling and standing with arms draped around each other, regardless of gender or age, is common in so many places, like um, Central and South America. Hair braiding and group dancing is common in a lot of tribal communities. And while I do know that certain types of collectivism really come with their own set of challenges, especially inside of patriarchy. The one thing that I've heard over and over and over again from colleagues and friends who are from places like Mexico, Colombia, Peru, Indonesia, is how common, frequent, and normalized touch is, and how when they've come to places like the U.S. and Canada, they've started feeling really starved and and been shocked by how little we touch each other. So that's just been making me think, you know, courtesy of this article and some of the other things that I've been diving into, how particularly in our current capitalist, neoliberal, colonialist, patriarchal structure that's rife with misogyny and toxic masculinity, that touch is something many of us do not experience because we have such restricted and fear-based views around touch and what it means. Like touch that is non-sexual is really genuinely devalued and ridiculed by so many of us, which is why I'm such a huge proponent for working with caring professionals as a way to get more of our touch needs met, you know, from massage therapists and hairstylists or barbers to people like somatic sex educators, sexological body workers, pro-doms, 
and sex workers, being able to access these services is a privilege because a lot of it does require money. But it's certainly something that many of us don't either take advantage of or we don't really realize what's available to us when we do take advantage of it. So I want to start by, as you listen to this, inviting you to take a couple of minutes to really think about the people in your life and the ways that you touch each other. And I think that it's important to notice whether or not you have many people that you can touch or um, just a couple, you know, a variety of people in your life that you can share touch with can be a lovely way to get lots of different needs met. But it is okay if you have a shorter list of people that you share touch with, as long as those people, and especially if it's just one person, aren't burdened by the expectation that they always have to fill your needs, even if they don't feel up for it. Like that's one of the reasons why having a variety, both of human and non-human, you know, petting animals and riding horses and hugging and wrestling with our dogs. This does offer us a sense of touch and connection, but there is something really special about touch among humans. I want more of us to platonically hold hands, to lean against each other, to engage in full body platonic hugging that lasts for more than a few seconds. You know, I mean, they say 30 second hug is what it takes to start releasing all those yummy chemicals in our brain that triggers a shift in our physiology. And I want so much for more of us to separate touch from sex so that more of us feel safe cuddling with each other and massaging each other's hands and shoulders and feet and being with each other. I mean, sexual touch and erotic touch are beautiful, powerful things, but it is important for us to name that because of homophobia and toxic masculinity, far too many people, especially and particularly cis men, really only experience pleasurable touch through sex, which then, because of the scarcity, often leads to sexualizing all touch out of a desperation for it. And that can make touch feel really unsafe for so many people. It's the reason why so many of the women that I see in my coaching practice have started withholding touch from partners because a desire for cuddles or a back rub or leaning against each other or being playful with touch gets turned into something sexual with expectation behind it, that they really start to feel unsafe around asking for those kinds of touches. And so they end up shutting touch down altogether. And then everyone's suffering. Humans need touch. We're a social species. And belonging is what drives almost all of our behavior. So wanted, consensual, pleasing touch is something that contributes to deep healing, emotional well-being, co-regulation, connection, a sense of worthiness which is why it's especially violent when touch gets turned into something dangerous. So take a moment and just really think about the touch in your life. Think about the reasons you do or you don't hold hands with your friends. Think about the ways you might be able to incorporate more touch 
from working with professionals to dance classes, to martial arts, to cuddle parties. There's so many ways that we can get touch if we start getting really curious and opening to it. And I want for more of us to have a sense of hearness and connection and touch really helps us to be able to feel into what makes us us. So enough about that. That's just part of what I've been kind of geeking out about because of these books and these articles. Um, but your questions are going to be what drives this week's episode. And I'm really excited. We've got three really awesome ones. I suspect you will have lots of feelings about them. So feel free to go to Facebook and visit the Sex Gets Real Facebook page if you want to share your thoughts about anything that's here. Let's jump into your questions. Anxious freshman, who I mentioned last week, wrote in with a subject line of majoring in development, minoring in intimacy. Their email says, hello, Dawn. I recently started listening to your podcast and I'm in love with the open, honest, and non-judgmental way you discuss sex, love, and relationships. I was looking for a sex positive voice to aid my journey and I'm glad I found yours. P.S. I'm going to try and keep this as short as possible, but it's a long story. The journey I'm embarking on is college. I'm starting in less than two weeks as an 18, almost 19-year-old. I'm a virgin. I have no shame in this as everyone moves at their own pace, but I have another issue, intimacy. I grew up in a home where love was viewed as an exchange. If I was good and did what my parents wanted, I was loved. If not, that love was lessened. Corporal punishment led me to find it hard to be honest with my parents about anything. Feelings and opinions weren't talked about. If they differed from my father's, they were viewed as wrong. My mom later grew and learned, so she took us away from my father to protect us, but her passive years have taken a toll. I have been improving. My elder sister and I both talk about how our father's tough love is part of why we're going to need therapy and have deep discussions of how we won't let us define or ruin us. And I've become more open to my friends about my emotions. But romantic relationships, not so much. It's hard for me to talk about sex and my feelings. I get an anxious, nauseous feeling when I think about it. The only relationship I've had was this year, and I told him via text when I was going through a rough time. We never went further than slow dancing at prom, which was awful and felt so forced because he wasn't comfortable enough to talk about his feelings and neither was I. We were both in a situation where we liked each other and hung out, but neither of us went the extra step of defining it. And as a result, it ended terribly. I can, however, talk about sex openly with my close friends, but I often lie about what I'm into to seem more normal or more innocent than them. I have kinks and they wouldn't care because they've shared theirs too, but it's this internal feeling that if I'm honest and they don't like my answer, that I'll be rejected or seen as wrong in some way. 
I'm desperate to have intimate sexual and romantic relationships, but also deeply unable to be honest enough to reach them. Any thoughts would be appreciated. Ah, well, hello to you, anxious freshman. I am really touched that you reached out, and I really appreciate you sharing what you did. Growing up in a household. <laughs> this, feels, this feels kind of personal. Growing up, growing up in a household where our truths and feelings are punished if they displease a parent or a caregiver can cause so much pain. I mean, as kids, our very survival rests on the adults who care for us. And so we naturally adapt to please them to keep ourselves as safe as possible, even if that means we learn behaviors that hurt later in life. I think it's incredible that you've not only survived your father's tough love, but then you know you want to learn new ways of relating and being in relationship with others. To be 18 years old and know that is pretty amazing. I would not have had that kind of self-awareness or language at your age at all. The first thing I want to offer, which it sounds like you're already doing, but bears repeating for anyone listening who might have a similar story, is to continually forgive ourselves for the ways that we coped and survived. You know, this means turning towards ourselves with kindness when we fall into older patterns and behaviors because they feel safe. They helped us to survive to now, and it can feel really scary and risky to change. So forgiving ourselves when we fall back into those those coping mechanisms and those strategies. The next thing is this feels hard because it is hard. It's hard for all of us in different ways and in different circumstances, but vulnerable sharing, being open about our emotions, it's risky. Being rejected by our friends can be incredibly painful and leave us feeling completely adrift because our friends, especially if we're going away to college, can be as important to us as family. And like so many things in life, the more we avoid doing a vulnerable or a scary thing, the more we build it up in our heads and the bigger and the scarier it becomes. So my recommendation is to start really small. A gentle way to invite ourselves into trying new behaviors, and for you anxious freshmen, that might mean writing down some of the things you'd like to share. It's a way to help you find language to practice saying the thing, to taking what's inside of you and putting it onto a page. Journaling can be a really powerful way for us to reflect and to practice new ways of being. So I recommend starting with something really small and gentle. And writing it down, practicing it that way might be a good starting point. Also, working with a coach or a therapist can feel really helpful. So if your campus has a mental health program, that might be a low-cost option for finding some support and having a place to practice saying some of these things and finding your voice. I do want to just say not all mental health professionals are created equal. So you will need to vet the people that you meet with and to take a little bit of time to build trust. But that can also be a way to practice sharing where the risk of rejection is lowered and you're kind of easing into building the intimacy. I think that's something else that's important to note 
you know, very few of us have the, um, the capacity, and it's not always safe either to do this, of entering into a relationship and we just trust all the things and share all the things and we can be vulnerable and intimate from the get-go. For most of us, it's a process. So we come into a relationship of some kind, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship or a sexual one, and we kind of feel things out. We find what our version of this dance looks like. And over the course of time, we start sharing things that are a little more personal or a little more vulnerable. And if that goes well, then we share a little bit more. But allowing it to be a process is important. It's not just all going to happen right at the exact same moment that you meet each other. And I also wonder if maybe there are some things that you might feel more comfortable sharing with your sister or one particular friend versus someone that you're new to dating or like an entire group of friends. The more that we get to practice being vulnerable the more that we start to feel into the truth that it's not as scary as it used to be. Being being rejected is pretty much inevitable as a human being. So if we have some soft places to land, if we have enough evidence that we aren't rejected every time we share, then we can also start building up some rejection resilience, which is another huge part of intimacy. Knowing that there is a high possibility of us being rejected around all kinds of things at different times in our life. And when we're rejected, it's not about denying that we're worthy or us not being enough. It's about this other person taking care of themselves or just being in a different place. And when we get through rejection a number of times and see we're still okay, people still love us, it helps to build our strength and kind of push against that like intense protective mechanism that we can have. Another thing that you can do if you want to work on developing your rejection resilience, which I do think is a core piece of us being able to share really intimately and vulnerably is to separate the practice of sharing and speaking your truth from the practice of rejection. So find small places where you can invite a no. That's really low stakes. It might be asking a barista if they have a flavor of syrup for your coffee that you know they don't carry. So when you ask the question, you know the response is going to be a no. You can ask a friend to help you do some role play where you take turns practicing being rejected. That can also be a really great way to practice rejecting others and articulating boundaries. So that can be a really fun practice for like you and a friend to be able to to role play a whole bunch of different ways. And I think it's important, like when we're doing those kinds of things, if it becomes playful and silly, that's okay. That's part of the fun of practicing and also really seeing that being rejected is not the end of the world. So finding those little moments, those low stakes moments for you to experience the no, see that it's not about you. It's not about your worthiness. It maybe feels a little scary or a little stingy, but I'm okay. I move on. And then when we make a practice of that, we start to find 
We welcome no. We want the no versus avoiding and running away from it. The last thing that I want to say is that paying attention to your body is crucial. And it's something so many of us forget to do. Everything that I've mentioned so far is ultimately a thought exercise, but intimacy, safety, connection, pleasure, they're about the body. I think it can be a really great thing to start noticing when you're with your friends, how safe do you feel in your body? Are you present? Can you feel your breath, your chest, your shoulders, your tummy? Are they tight and tense or relaxed and open? Sharing our truth when we're tense or braced or constricted or desperately wanting to control the outcome or being outside of ourselves is really difficult. And even potentially re-traumatizing because our body is communicating, I don't feel really safe and open, and we're still trying to force ourselves to do a thing. And so that disrupts trust with ourselves and with our body. So as you hang out with your friends, since that's kind of who's immediately available to you right now, see if you can make a practice of noticing, not trying to change, at least not at first, but just noticing what you feel in your body when you're with them. Like what topics, what spaces, what people do you find you're most present and at ease with? Those are probably the circumstances where sharing some simple truths, being a little bit more vulnerable might be the place to start. And then easing into higher stakes situations. Once you've really established that trust with body and listening, you've practiced with no You've practiced speaking some of your truths. If you find you're always tense or braced around your friends, then maybe there's some other places in your life where you feel a little bit more present and open because maybe that's too high of stakes right at the beginning. So again, that might be a place to do some journaling and some reflecting and then feeling into your body. When I write about these things, I feel more at ease or I feel more constriction. I would also ask, If you had to choose one person that you feel most at ease with physically, where you're not trying to look cool or you're not trying to hold your body in a really particular way, where you just really feel okay taking up space and feeling good and feeling at ease, that's probably a really good person to practice having some of these more intimate conversations with, maybe doing some of this role play, because Everything that you are hungry for takes practice and it takes making mistakes. It takes time. It's going to be awkward. It's going to feel kind of weird because allowing ourselves to speak our truth and to be seen is taking up space, which means it's risky and it is vulnerable. So finding places where you can do that is so precious. So I'd invite you to start there. Like instead of starting with, I want to have these really intimate romantic relationships, starting to be able to be with yourself around your truth and hear your body, and then moving into some really low stakes situations where you can practice, experience some rejection, see how you respond, speaking your truth a little bit more with your friends. Once that starts to feel a little bit more available to you, then starting to expand that circle. 
There's one other thing that I'm thinking of. Sometimes it can feel easier to speak our truth and share in places where we're more anonymous or where people don't really know us. Like in my experience, writing workshops or book clubs or discussion groups. If that feels like a better option for you, anxious freshman, it might be worth considering, you know, especially with you going off to college. I know some of the most vulnerable things I've ever shared have happened in workshops and retreats. And when no one ran screaming from the room, when no one judged me, where people kept talking to me after I shared that super scary thing, it often gave me just a little bit more permission to try sharing some of that with the people in my life that I was really invested in whose relationship really mattered to me because it's a lot to ask ourselves to share scary truths with someone that really matters to us. If the risk is they go away. So maybe doing something that's a little more anonymous or with people who are like acquaintances versus friends might be another way to start because not everyone is deserving of our private inner world. So give yourself time to feel into your relationships. Trust takes time and it takes consistency. So starting with smaller, easier shares, and then depending on how they're received, calibrate around whether this is a person who might be safe for deeper truths, or maybe this is a person who doesn't really get to see that side of you. It's also a part of emotional intelligence and self-trust. And then finally, if you really have a great relationship with your friends and you're struggling to get over that hump, it can work wonders to actually ask for help or to share that you're scared of sharing some more personal stuff because of how it was in your house growing up and to admit maybe you're not ready to share some things yet, but you just really want your friends to know that you're scared of them rejecting you and to ask if they can help with that. My guess is if they're really great friends, they're going to totally understand and offer to support you in whatever ways feel good. If they don't, that might be a matter of either like maturity or they might just not be your people and you'll grow your way into new people. But all of this is an opportunity of being with and practicing and building the skills so that when we do finally meet someone that we're romantically interested in or sexually interested in, we've had lots of opportunities for trying, building that trust and speaking our truth and experiencing rejection and knowing it doesn't kill us. There's a lot, there's so much more that I would love to say, but I think I've kind of thrown enough at you at this point. And I hope that gave you just a couple of different things to chew on, anxious freshmen. It sounds like you are really in an amazing place. The fact that you're even asking this question and wanting to be different means you are creating the space and the opportunity for change to even be possible. And at 18, that's fucking amazing. I was not there. So good luck to you. And know that you have lots and lots of time to practice and to figure this out. You are not behind the curve. In fact, I kind of think you're way ahead of the curve. And it was really exciting to hear from you. This next email is from Al whose subject line is, should I feel bad or guilty? The email reads, hi, Dawn. 
I'm not really sure how to start this. My wife has pretty much decided to be celibate because she is unhappy with her body and how she sees herself. We've been married 20 plus years and are happy otherwise. No matter what I say, she is steadfast against having sex of any kind. I very much love my wife, but I am very sexual. I do not equate sex with love. For almost seven years, I have had no sexual contact between, besides my own hand from masturbation and have decided I need to have an affair. I'm afraid to have the talk with my wife about it as I don't want to chance any kind of fight. I'm not looking for affection, only carnal pleasure that I have been missing. Do you think I'm wrong? My wife has different views about sex and affection. Thanks for your time, and I hope this wasn't too scattered and all over the place. I just want sex. Well, hello to you, Al. (laughs) Versions of this question are pretty common in my inbox, and it's something that I've fielded a variety of ways over the years. I really do know this is a painful place to be. So I want you to know you're not alone in asking yourself this question. It's one that lots of people who are in this field get from people like you all the time. So the short answer is you entered into a relationship with your wife with spoken and unspoken agreements. And if the relationship is no longer working for you, then the respectful thing to do is to have that conversation. And if need be, to end things. I think so often we forget that the potential damage that you can cause by betraying someone is huge and it can lead to trust issues long, long after a betrayal. That's not to say that all affairs end badly or with someone getting hurt, but the risk is high and the potential harm is big. And my hope is that what all of us are after is reducing harm. I think it's always tempting with questions like this to kind of do that. Let me turn this back around on you. How would you feel if the situation was reversed? But I find that doesn't tend to be very helpful because if you have a fundamentally different view about sex or about cheating, it can become a way to excuse hurting someone else because then it's like, well, I wouldn't mind if she wanted to fuck someone else. So I think instead it can be more helpful to ask yourself How do you think she wants to be treated? As I was thinking about this question, I scanned a couple of the groups that I'm in for conversations about cheating just to see what some other people are saying. And I pulled a couple of tidbits to share here so that you're not only hearing from me. I have changed personal details and specifics so that these are anonymous, but here's what three different people had to say on the topic of cheating. One person said cheating is about deception and or a lack of integrity of action. Be true to your word. And if you need to change your plans, communicate. It's not about control. It's about integrity. Another person wrote, the issue is the agreement, not the action itself. You have agreed to do something. And in your case, Al, I'm assuming that that agreement is to be in a monogamous marriage and have chosen not to do that either through lying or omission. That's cheating. 
I really like that this person said that because it gives us a chance to kind of sit inside of your question without it being about sex. For instance, if you and your wife, let's say, have an unspoken agreement, you probably do, not to spend thousands of dollars without talking about it with each other and making a decision, it would be pretty shitty and potentially really catastrophic to your safety and even your living situation. If she went and spent thousands of dollars on something that she really, 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 really wanted that you kept saying no to, and then potentially put you both out of a home, made it so you couldn't afford food. And I think that that's a a really nice way of kind of framing this, whether it's money, sex, time, something else entirely. The bottom line is you agreed to something. So if that agreement is no longer working for you, the important thing is to talk about it, to try and find ways to collaborate, to investigate your own needs and what's underneath them, to come to a new agreement, whether that's things staying the same, the relationship ending, or something else entirely. Someone else in some of these relationship groups I'm in said, I believe lying is not good because it constitutes a lack of respect and thoughtful communication, which is necessary for a healthy relationship. I feel this way about lying and deception in general. Obviously, there are exceptions to this, such as in cases of abuse, but I think we can all agree that honesty is typically a good thing between loved ones. Unfortunately, almost all of us have internalized the cultural myth that being married means a lifetime of access to sex and intimacy, but the truth is it doesn't. We are never owed access to another person's body, which means we're never owed sex. When you pair that with a culture that shames us for talking about sex, that teaches us the default is unexamined monogamy, that doesn't teach us how to have open discussions about our relationship, or that it's healthy and helpful to check in and recalibrate every few years. And then you pair that with things like toxic masculinity and all sorts of other stuff. It's no wonder that it's so common for so many people to cheat. We aren't taught that our relationship with our body changes over time, that our bodies themselves change over time, that we move through cycles of ease and pain or illness and wellness, but there are other ways of doing intimate and sexual relationships beyond assumed monogamy. And if we haven't created relationships in our lives that are flexible and resilient to the ebbs and flows of what it means to be human, then we often find ourselves in situations where we've outgrown relationships or where the relationship just can't hold the complexity any longer. You know, we change, our needs change. And the hope is that we can work together to decide what serves us and the relationship. Sometimes the best thing for us is that this relationship needs to change. Sometimes also just some time and creativity can work wonders. You can't force your wife to change and you can't force your wife to work with someone around her own pain. Though I do hope that even while you are hurting, you can offer her compassion for the things she's going through. Another thing that I just kind of wonder, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this is 
is there the potential that the unspoken expectation of sex has caused a growing sense of failure and shame and constriction over the seven years to the point where now your wife feels so utterly cut off from sex as something pleasurable and instead just feels all this resentment and the weight of all of these years of expectation. It might feel easier for her to deny that it's there or to say that it's all these other things. I've worked with a lot of couples where the expectation from one person around sex has led to deep disconnection. And often we don't even know that it's there. We're just feeling these really difficult things and try and shut it off so that we can survive. So I wonder for you, Al, what comes up when you ask yourself, what does it mean to be generous in this relationship with this human, especially when both of you are in pain? What does this relationship offer you that feels good and nourishing and supportive and important? And what does this relationship as it is right now not offer you? You know, our relationships aren't checklists of pros and cons that we can rationalize or create some kind of perfect balance. There's always going to be conflict and mismatches, but taking some time to just think about it from a more holistic perspective, we can start finding all sorts of things that maybe we haven't noticed when we start becoming hyper-focused on this one area of stuckness. As humans, it's so easy and tempting for us to zero in on the pain and to ignore all of the places of ease and joy and pleasure, to zero in on the problem and to lose sight of the fact that there's all these other things that feel really great. And it's important for us to listen to these parts of us that feel tender and hurt. What can they tell us? The pain of wanting to be touched and of not being touched by someone you love is so real. It can hurt tremendously. So in the interest of you having more options to sit with, because I don't think this is just a black and white thing, I think it is worth taking some time to reflect on your own desires, Al, and to investigate them a little bit. I mean, maybe you've done this, but just for other people who are listening, here are some things that kind of I thought about as I read your email. When you and your wife used to have sex, was it only ever intercourse or genital related? Is there an opportunity for broadening both of your experiences and opportunities around sex and pleasure and connection? What about mutual masturbation, reading erotica together, showering together, tickle fights, bondage, role play, playing with power like dominance and ambition, writing each other sexy texts? There's literally an endless variety of ways that we can feel erotically met and expressed and stretched and validated to feel into the depths of our sexuality and our sexual selves without it ever having to be about our genitals or intercourse or nudity. So I wonder, have you and your wife built up the skills and created the kind of emotional safety where you could explore that vastness together? If she feels insecure about her body, what are all the ways you two could connect without her ever having to get naked or to be penetrated? And I also think if you find yourself constricting around the questions, wondering something along the lines of, but what about my dick? (laughs) 
I also think that's an opportunity to examine the stories you have about sex. Would you still want to feel sexual and erotic if you couldn't have an erection any longer? Maybe if you at any point get prostate cancer or have an accident where you can no longer use that part of your body, my guess is yes. You would still want to feel sexual and erotic, but it would look different. You'd find new ways to feel that fun rush of arousal and to know physical pleasure. So what are the opportunities? You know, at the top of the show, I talked about how so many men, especially, suffer because they've internalized this idea that sex is the only way to get so many of their needs met. And yes, sex can be wonderful and delicious and important. And we can also use sex as a stand-in for other needs, for touch, for intimacy, for feeling aroused in our lives, for being embodied, for validating your gender. And when we start to investigate what's underneath, there can be such an opportunity for expansion. If sex is a way to feel more like a man, for instance, what does it mean to you to feel like a man? What are other activities or opportunities for having that part of yourself validated? And if you find that it's a really short list, I think that's also an opportunity to see how you're experiencing your gender is so limited. Same for like maybe using sex as a way to feel really present and embodied. What are all the other ways that you and your wife could engage with each other to feel present and embodied? Erotic breath work, pillow fights, cuddling, maybe working on a charitable project together, like volunteering at an animal shelter or building a house. Asking questions like this isn't about discounting sex, but it is a way to start giving us other entry points for getting our needs met, for collaborating, for co-creating. And often when we start feeling into the options, when we get really genuinely curious, not from a place of manipulation, but from a place of what else is here, we start feeling this big shift of energy. It feels less heavy and stuck, more playful. And then inside of that, so many other things can feel like they're coming back to life, including our erotic energy. You know, I like to think about food a lot when I'm thinking about sex. If we only ever ate one thing, whenever we were thinking about food, we'd probably start feeling really, 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 really hungry for that one thing because we didn't know there was all of these other things that we could have and we might not be very nourished. But when we start to see there's all of these other foods that we can eat, all these other flavors to experiment with and try, We can start feeling really nourished and fed in ways we never could have imagined before. Hilary Knavey from Be Nourished likes to talk about how when we circle the thing we want without actually having the thing we want, we become really obsessed with it, which can create a situation of binging or compulsion or other types of coping behaviors. And I'm not saying that's where you are, Al, but I just offer that as something all of us can be with. And I think to your question, Al, only you can decide what this relationship with your wife means to you and whether you respect her enough to be upfront 
about what's going on for you, what you want, what you need. If she can't meet you in the kind of sex you want, then the choice is, do you want to take the time to work together on co-creating new stories, new opportunities for feeling pleasure and connection? Or maybe can the two of you ethically restructure your relationship so that maybe it's an open relationship where both of you can date others or have sex with others? And I just want to say, if you are thinking about ethical non-monogamy and opening your relationship, it has to be for the both of you. She doesn't have to do something, but she has to have the option. It wouldn't be fair for you to open your relationship and then you're the only one that's allowed to go do this other thing, right? But that is an option that's on the table. Can the two of you find new ways of being in relationship with each other? Or if those things aren't possible, is it time to transition out of the marriage and to end things so that you can pursue this thing that you want? I can't tell you the number of times I've gotten emails over the years from people who cheated and then deeply regretted it. I'm sure that's not true for everyone. I have certainly been in relationships and experiences around infidelity, but it's important to just note that once that line is crossed, you can't uncross it. It's not to say it automatically is the end of your marriage, but repair work and rebuilding trust can be years long and really uncomfortable and challenging. And if there's another way, my hope is that we can do that. You deserve to be happy. We all deserve that. And my hope is that we can consider our interdependence, the impact that we have on the people around us, the ways our behaviors ripple out into other relationships in the community. It's messy and imperfect and nuanced. And the final thing that I want to offer is if you do decide to cheat, if you decide that's where you're going to go, that I highly recommend working with a professional. Hire a sex worker. Hire someone who knows how to negotiate, will keep things professional and boundaried, who won't text you at all hours or get emotionally attached and make things messier. If you decide to cheat, hire a professional. So I know there was a lot in there, Al, and that the answer isn't cut and dry, but with something this messy, it can't be. Being human and being in relationship with other humans is messy. So I hope that this has just offered you some food for thought, some things to consider as you feel into this relationship with your wife and what you're going to do next. Maybe it's given you some questions to be in, or maybe after hearing all of these things, what you've noticed is, I just don't want to do this work. I think we're beyond that. The hurt is too deep. And maybe it's time to transition out of this marriage. And that's okay too. I wish you the very best of luck, Al. And thank you so much for listening to the show and for writing in. This last email for this week's episode is about big cock blues. Here's what it says. Hey, Dawn, I'm a cis woman and I have a new cis male sexual partner who I'm really into. I'm stoked about our connection. 
We have excellent chemistry. There's just one problem. His cock is massive. And sex, for the first time in my life, is partly a painful experience. The part it hurts the most is right at my vaginal opening because his cock is a lot bigger at the base. I have no problem getting super duper wet before we have sex, and I make sure he pleasures me a lot before a penis and vagina. And even though sex is amazing, it leaves me feeling sore, dry, and irritated. Aside from the pain in that one area, I love having PIV sex with him. His cock is so big. It gives me pleasure I've never been able to experience before. Any advice? I would love to continue the relationship with this beautiful cock and beautiful man. Love, big cock blues. Well, hello, BCB. Thank you for writing in. Yay for a partner that you're really into. Yay for excellent chemistry and for new kinds of pleasure and boo for discomfort and pain that isn't feeling so hot. The first place my mind went when I read your email was about lube. I know you said you get super duper wet, but adding lube certainly can hurt, especially really high quality lube like Uber lube that has a lot of staying power. You know, if you start wet, but then maybe through the stretching and the motion, things begin to dry out. Having lube there to add throughout the process can help with all sorts of things. You also mentioned that he pleasures you a lot before intercourse. And I think that this is a really interesting place for checking in with your body because a lot might seem like a lot on paper or compared to other partners, but for your body, a lot, a lot might not be quite enough for what you're trying to do. It can take an average of 20 to 45 minutes of arousal for the tissues in and around your vulva to become fully engorged and to really be in that yummy yes place. So maybe there's an opportunity to experiment with extending the non-intercourse sexual activity to much longer than either of you think that it should. Another thing that can help is having orgasms before trying the big thing, before the intercourse. I know for some people, myself included, if they're going to try something like fisting or some type of very large insertable, it can help to have an orgasm or two or three to really warm everything up, to get everything really engaged and primed before that tissue is really ready for a stretch kind of activity. If you're up for the work and the practice around stretching the area, doing something like regular perineal massage might also be worth a try, just like pregnant folks do to prepare the perineum and vaginal opening for birth, which certainly gets stretched. Perineal massage can help reduce the chances of tearing and damage to the area, which might also help reduce pain. So I'm including a link to an article about perineal massage and stretching for birth. Uh, if you go to donsarah.com slash EP284, you can go down the rabbit hole about all kinds of of stretching. It's similar to using dilators, but this kind of like intentional, regular daily massage might help offer you a little bit of relief because you're training and offering your body an opportunity to stretch and find some ease around this kind of extreme experience for you. 
I also think it's just worth bears saying that not all bodies can accommodate all sizes. I have seen some people get fisted by folks with massive hands and their body was a big old yes to that. While mine, on the other hand, no matter the prep would be just like, no way, Jose, not, not happening. Some bodies prefer smaller insertables and some bodies prefer or can handle larger insertables. But what our bodies can accommodate does change over time. It changes based on our mental health, our stories, whether or not we're scared that it's going to hurt, how safe we feel, how much warm-up we've had. So in other words, let your body dictate. Let your body dictate what it feels up for and trust in that wisdom. It's so tempting to want to override the body, to try and force our bodies to do things for all of these external reasons, like this other person wants it and I want to look super sexy or um, all kinds of things, right? We're thinking our way instead of feeling our way. And the wisest and most pleasurable thing that we can do is honor where our body is and to find ways to work with it rather than against it. Maybe intercourse with this guy is only a sometimes thing. Maybe intercourse with this guy is just the tip thing and you're always in the driver's seat. If you're on top, you can control the depth. Maybe he uses toys of increasing sizes on you before his cock ever tries to enter you. Maybe he wears a cock ring that feels really yummy for him but prevents you from going all the way to the base. Maybe you two try positions that allow for penetration, but with much shallower strokes like you on your stomach. There's lots of opportunities, but listen to your body and let that decide what's happening, when it's happening, and how much is happening. One other thing that often helps a lot of people feel really yummy about anal sex is stimulating their clit before and during anal sex, because that can shift us from worrying about whether or not it's going to hurt to feeling into this big yes of pleasure. So if you're not already doing that, give that a try. And I would say, even though it feels good during, if it's causing any tissue trauma, it might not be the right thing for you, at least not right now to keep riding that cock without trying some of these other things first. But no matter what it sounds like, with the chemistry and the connection, there's so much potential, even if intercourse isn't on the table for a lot of your sexual encounters. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Sounds like the two of you are doing all kinds of other yummy things that feel good. So center that. Do more of that. And try some of these other things that I mentioned to see if that makes your body feel like a yes, or if it's still not feeling quite ready for it. I hope that helps and have fun experimenting. So that's it for this week's episode. If you could use support, write to me. I love hearing from you. You are a big part of what makes this show happen. So from sex and love to diet culture and trauma, emotions and everything in between, send me a note. If you could use some support or some resources, my email is info at sexgetsreal.com or you can go to donsara.com and use the contact form. No dicks, pics, please. <laughs> I've had enough of those. And until next week, when you get to hear my chat with Kai Ching Tom, I'm Don Sarah. Bye. You.
used to light up like a spark. Now you're blue, treading water in the dark. A huge thanks to the vocal few, the married duo behind the music featured in this week's intro and outro. Find them at vocalfew.com. Head to patreon.com slash sex gets real to support the show and get awesome weekly bonuses. As you look towards the next week, I wonder, what will you do differently that rewrites an old story, revitalizes a stuck relationship, or helps you to connect more deeply with your pleasure? So don't be ashamed.